Welcome back to the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name's Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Sarah Schwartz from the EPA to help define a couple of terms for our show today. Sarah, are you ready to talk about 303D and the impaired waters list? I am. I'm excited. So 303D, not exactly the friendliest term to start off with, but let's just kind of define that up front. 303D, some numbers, what does that mean? You know, it's very much jargon between water quality professionals. But when I say 303D, what am I talking about? Yeah, I wouldn't expect anyone off the street to know what 303D means, but it's really just the part of the Clean Water Act we're referring to. And in this episode or the next episode, we're going to be talking about components of the program, like assessment of waters, impaired waters lists, and restoration plans, which we refer to as TMDLs. Perfect. So 303D program includes both of those programs. We talked about that in the intro episode as being the bridge program. So these next two episodes are really representing that bridge from the data collection piece and the water quality standards piece over to the implementation programs, which we'll get into in episodes six and seven. So to help us out, we wanted to talk about assessment. So both Miranda and Dustin, who we'll hear from, um, talk about assessments. What does that mean in the context of the 303D program? In the 303D program, assessment is the process of comparing the results of the water quality samples or data we collect against the water quality standards that are set for that water body to be considered healthy. And you can think of this sort of like getting blood work done at the doctor's. The doctor looks at your results and compares it against what is considered healthy. So assessment in the 303D context is a similar process, but we are assessing um, or comparing the monitoring results against the water quality standards. So if we go back to our previous episodes, right? So we had Jennifer and Thomas talk about water quality standards. We had Kelly and Monty talk about water quality monitoring. So in the assessment, we're bringing those two programs together. We're bringing those two programs together where we say this uh, water body clears for this, uh, this particular standard, but what happens if it doesn't? Right. So that brings us to impairment, which is basically what happens when our assessment shows that the water body is not meeting water quality standards, as you said. And a good shorthand for this is just a polluted water body. And it might be considered polluted or impaired for one pollutant or more than one. Once the state identifies these polluted water bodies, they're put on a list every two years called the 303D impaired waters list, um, or what I think you've referred to as the naughty list in the past, Jeff. And putting the water bodies on this list sort of puts them in line for the development of a restoration plan, which we'll get into on the next episode. So I think that's an interesting point that we should probably talk about here is that the impaired waters list is a list that's developed every two years by the states. And it contains all of the water bodies that aren't meeting an expectation, at least one expectation, could be more than one, um, but at least one of the expectations are not being met. 
So sometimes you may have something where you are on the impaired waters list for one pollutant, but there's other uses that may not be impacted and they may be clear. So it's important to be able to understand how to how to read and navigate that if you're going to go out and recreate on some of these waters and understand exactly what why they might be on the impaired waters list for in the first place. That's a good point. There can be a lot of information to look at, and it's important to understand what you're looking at, and hopefully this conversation will help get you there. And then just so that we're clear to try to decouple a little bit of this as we go forward, uh, in the interview, Dustin and Miranda may make mention to something called the integrated report. The integrated report, just basically what that means is the all of the assessments that are done, whether or not the water bodies are impaired. There's the impaired waters list, which is a separate list. And then there is a, a more encompassing list of all of the assessments. And they're combined together for what's called the integrated report. So we use those things interchangeably. Any industry has some of that jargon stuff that can kind of trip, trip us up when we're talking about it. Don't worry too much about that. Just focus on the impaired waters list containing all of the waters that aren't meeting at least one expectation. So Sarah, I'm actually really excited about this conversation. I've been excited about all of our conversations so far, but this <laughs> one is starting to hit a little closer to home as we are talking to people that I know very well that I've worked with for a long time. And so to help us understand impairments and the impaired waters list a little better, we're talking to two of my favorite people that I've worked with in clean water work, Miranda Nichols from Minnesota and Dustin Scholl from Pennsylvania. Uh, they both have extended knowledge about assessments and putting together a state's impaired waters list. And this is even more exciting because, Sarah, we are so close to talking about water quality plans and TMDLs, uh, which is where I made my home for, for quite a number of years. So very excited that we are getting to this part of the Clean Water Act. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And without further delay, here's my interview with Dustin and Miranda. Dustin and Miranda, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. So Miranda, I want to start with you. Can you give me a little bit of background? Where did you go to school and how did you get involved in this level of work? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I am born and raised in Minnesota. I went to my first 12 years of education in a little town called Holdingford, Minnesota, and that matters because that's where my water story begins, my personal water story. I was in middle school and we did a little project where we took a jug of pond water back to the classroom and we poured it out in a tray and looked at it. And the life that was in this pond water, I was hooked. And for since middle school, I knew I wanted a career in water. And that didn't shape out exactly. Um, everybody's career path takes a little bit uh, a different a different direction. Um, but I did go to the College of St. Benedict for biology. That's, and then I went to UW-Madison and got a degree in water resources management. But while I was there, I got a student worker job at the Center for Limnology and I ran inorganic chemistry analysis and loved it and got an introduction not only to inorganics and how they work as part of the very basis of, of water quality. That got me my job at the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. So I currently have been with the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency for 16 years now. I am a data analysis supervisor. I supervise a, a unit um, full of very uh, smart, 
technically savvy folks that work on all sorts of data projects. But prior to taking that role, I worked for almost 10 years on Minnesota's impaired waters list as their impaired waters list coordinator. Dustin, what about you? Are you a born and raised Pennsylvanian? And how long have you been working for your department? Yes, I, I am born and raised in Pennsylvania. Um, so I kind of grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, a town called Hanover. Uh, if anybody knows what's potato chips, stack food capital of the world. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm from. Uh, went to school in, in Pennsylvania as well. Um, after a little bit of time in the military, came back and uh, landed a job at DEP in 2010. Um, so I started off in water with my career and uh, started in water quality monitoring. Um, uh, those of you that know Pennsylvania, starting in 2008, 2010, we had the Marcellus, Marcellus shale boom. You know, that landed me a job doing water quality monitoring. And in 2012, I moved over to where I'm at now in the assessment section, 303D uh, assessments with the Clean Water Act, and we build the integrated report. And just a few years ago, um, I was lucky enough to uh, get the position as assessment section uh, supervisor. So that's where I'm at now with, I think, about 13 years of uh, DEP experience now. 13 is a lucky number. That's that's how many years I ran my program for the state of Iowa. So we, we've just heard a couple of terms, and Sarah and I talked about a little bit of that up front, but let's talk about what you guys said. So I heard impaired waters list. I heard 303D list. I heard integrated report, right? So let's untangle that a little bit because we as practitioners sort of use those terms uh, interchangeably, and that can maybe be a little confusing. So let's just start there by laying out Impaired waters list, 303D list, integrated report. I can start with impaired waters list. This is always where I start when I talk about the list and it's defining impaired. And impaired goes back to those Clean Water Act fishable swimmable goals. If a water body is not meeting one of those fishable swimmable goals, we consider it impaired and we put it on a list. And that is part of the Clean Water Act requirement. Every water body has different goals and multiple goals and something could be on the list for uh, not meeting its consumption goals. Fish is high in mercury, but the recreation is fantastic. So we also talk about impaired waters in terms of beneficial uses, which I know you've covered and is very important. So when working with the impaired waters list, you need to know what it means to be impaired. It's not meeting its goals. And those goals are defined by our water quality standards for our beneficial uses. And so Dustin used the word assessments, and I worked on assessments for many years. And not only is it defining those waters that are impaired, but also those waters meeting their goals. Um, an assessment is this wonderful world where you take all your monitoring data, you compare it to your water quality standards. And yes, you come up with an impaired waters list, but also you come up with that integrated report that Dustin mentioned, where you're really tracking the water quality of every water body. Dustin, it's like episode two, we talked about water quality standards. Episode three, we talked about water quality monitoring. What you guys are doing in the assessment program is you're taking that information that's developed and, and accumulated throughout the uh, monitoring collection process, comparing it against those water quality standards, and you're trying to figure out what to do with that information. So what does that look like when you're when you're doing that, when you're preparing that integrated report, those that, that impaired waters list? Yeah, so it's, um, like you said, a lot of data gets collected, you know, across the nation. And in Pennsylvania, we have a very strong fo focus in uh, biological information. We have uh, water chemistry and obviously physical data. So 
we have those components and we have protocols that are established to kind of standardize the way we collect that information. Um, and then on my side of things, we take all that, we bundle it up, we compare it uh, to water quality standards. Some of the new tools that have come about um, like our R coding um, and statistical software that we have nowadays has really brought us leaps and bounds and taking that really complex information and boiling it down and comparing it to our water quality standards. And then from that decision, um, we're able to create what we mentioned before the integrated report, pulling it all together. It's quite a feat. So let's talk a little bit about accomplishments of the Clean Water Act. So late in 2022, when we launched this podcast series, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Clean Water Act. And you know, different sections of the Clean Water Act have been a little bit more active than others. And so the impaired waters list may not go back a full 50 years for most states. I think that that's pretty universal throughout. But we've all been around these programs for long enough to honestly be to be pretty knowledgeable about the majority of the history of of these impaired waters lists. And so I, I'm curious to know both of your guys's thoughts on this question, what would you say are the biggest accomplishments of it within the 303D list, within the impaired waters list, the establishment of the Clean Water Act until now? Yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. I would say it's going beyond permits. It's going beyond impairments. It's really going to assessing all the state of our waters and then coming up with restoration plans. Minnesota has had a pretty robust watershed wa watershed by watershed approach since about 2010, where in the process of creating our impaired waters list, we are also looking holistically at one watershed. And when we talk about writing total maximum daily loads, we're not doing this whack-a-mole based on a permitted facility and an impaired water, we're doing it more holistically in that, in that space. And what comes out is yes, total maximum daily loads for an entire watershed, but also restorate like protection strategies for those waters that are meeting standards and we don't wanna see degrade. Yeah, to expand on that, um, in Pennsylvania, we have you know, approximately 85,000 miles of streams. So one of the biggest accomplishments has been <clears throat> getting the entire state assessed for at least aquatic life use. Um, so 85,000 miles of streams in Pennsylvania are 100% assessed for at least one of our use categories. Um, that's a massive accomplishment. From that, I'll, I'll also have to say, you know, the amount of science that has come out of the 303D program and its effort to really get a handle on measuring our the state of our waters um, has produced some really incredible science uh, journal article publications expanding our understanding of freshwater biology um, and, and marine biology as well it's a really amazing accomplishment so when we talk about impaired waters lists and i you know i always kind of think of like how do i explain this to my mom right like there's there's always that person in your life that you'd like to be able to explain these things so that they understand they may not have a scientific background the three of us have all gone out to public meetings and led public meetings where you get um, 
people from all over the community with different levels of science background. And you know, we can't talk in that uh, administrivia type talk. We can't talk necessarily in very deep, rich scientific terms, but you're not looking to simplify it too much, right? You're still trying to uh, work out the fundamentals of what you're doing in plain language. And so I'm hoping, Miranda, can you tell me the fundamentals that we would be looking at if some if you directed somebody to your state's impaired waters list how would you describe what they're seeing on the website in the over simplification of it it is something is wrong with the water we found something wrong and we have to put it on a list i encourage people to be a little bit more curious and and i'll use the example of of mercury we have a lot of lakes impaired for mercury in minnesota and so when somebody goes and sees a map of minnesota's impaired waters list and put it on a map the whole northern half of the state is all red what's going on all of our lakes are bad it's not true you have it goes back to the uses what are you using that water for if you're way up in the boundary waters yep you might be concerned about how much fish you eat because there's mercury in the fish but that water is amazing for recreation. So putting that out there that, what do you wanna use that lake for? What do you wanna use that stream for? Getting back to that use and talking about, yep, in some cases we might find things that are wrong, but guess what? In other cases, it might, it might be just great. Dustin, when you're going out and talking to communities in Pennsylvania, is there anything in particular that you have found to be particularly useful uh, in terms of a concept or describing, maybe using a metaphor or an analogy or anything like that, that has worked well for you to talk about the impaired waters list? Yeah, I, th I think so. You know, one of our core components for making assessments and understanding water quality as a whole is, like I said, biological, right? Biological and looking at bugs and fish, it's, it's complicated. So what people really want to know is, you know, is it safe to swim? Is it safe to drink? I kind of fall back to the food chain, right? And explaining why everything that we do is equally important or as important as what somebody might be interested in. If you go back to the food chain and that concept of, you know, you know, the primary producers are really important to help, you know, the, the consumers, and then we get, get to us up the food chain and, and bringing that chain and, and understanding that connection and communicating that um, really well, I think helps for folks to really understand why all the uses like Miranda mentioned are so important across the board. That's one thing I use. So when you guys, let's get into a little bit more of the building blocks and, you know, let's get nerdy a little bit here. Maybe don't go too far, but let's get a little nerdy here. So the fundamentals of the impaired waters list. So what I know, so I didn't run the impaired waters list for Iowa. I ran the next episode that we're going to be having in our series, but the, the impaired waters list comes out every other year. I know that. So there's this cycle to this work that there's a lot of work and assessment and then putting out the list and going out and communicating that list to the public. And Dustin, you do something very interesting with that list. And I know Minnesota has a lot of interesting stuff. So Miranda, let's start with you. Can you tell me sort of the fundamental building blocks of putting together an impaired waters list for your state. Yeah, so as you mentioned, it comes out once every two years, but that doesn't mean it's just a flash in the pan. It takes two years to build that list. And the nerdy part is the data. Oh, I love it. It's We monitor, people are monitoring all over the place. They're giving us our data. 
And then we QAQC it, and then we pull it in and compare it to our water quality standards. As Dustin mentioned, he has our code that does that. We have an in-house system that does that, but it is all run in a box. And what comes after that is then it's the professional judgment. It's the water quality experts that sit down, look at that data. All right, the computer said it, says it might be impaired but is it? Let's look at precipitation. Let's look at uh, landscape. Let's look at everything around that water. And I already mentioned that the way Minnesota does it is watershed by watershed. So we do this on a cycle. And so we are doing that process twice every year. We, we're, we're running those water quality assessments. We're having people look at the data. We're making those beneficial use determinations. We're identifying new impairments. We're also identifying opportunities for delistings. Those are ones that are meeting water quality standards and can come off the list. It's a big coordination effort for states like Pennsylvania and Minnesota with lots of water quality, lots of resources. Luckily, we have lots of resources. And that's a team of dozens of people to make those determinations. When I come in as the impaired waters list coordinator, I'm making sure all those things are getting done. And then when it's time to put that list on public notice, I'm checking to make sure everything looks good. And then we go out and we communicate that list. That's a really interesting point, Miranda. And we'll, we'll talk about that in the future, particularly when we talk about success stories, when we get into our future seasons and we, we dive into specific success stories. But the number of people in different states will vary. You know, when you have states that have more resources, they can afford more staff to, to crunch more of those numbers, to collect more of that data. Um, so you will see some differences there. I know uh, sharing, living in a state that shares a border with Minnesota, how, how much great work you you guys do and how many waters, of course, that you guys have, uh, the land of 10,000 lakes, which I think is a, is a understatement, um, if I remember correctly. It is. Um, if you're counting, so if we weren't, we do one more little geek out piece in the data portion. We know this, we call our waters assessment units. And I know Pennsylvania's got us beat with assessment units, but when we are talking just about lakes, Minnesota's got like 40,000. It's kind of crazy. But I I do want to expand on one one thing Jeff and and that's and that's resources and how it does vary by state and that's true it's always been true it always will be true. Uh, this is the point when I when I, every time I talk about the list I have to say this as well. Minnesotans really care. And I'm not saying that other people in other states don't care, but back in 28 2008 there was a ballot initiative to set aside money for clean water. And so we have these funds that are added, that our tax, taxes go to, so that we can work on these water quality projects. It's not only monitoring and assessment, but it's implementation to get those changes on the ground to see those improvements and see those delistings. And so I recognize that Minnesota is very lucky in that, in that respect. And so I always have to say, it's, it's the people of Minnesota, it's not me. Absolutely, of course. And again, makes a lot of us jealous in other states that don't have that level of uh, public support directly in the way that you have just described, Miranda. But Dustin, in Pennsylvania, you guys have been doing something that's very interesting and also the envy of a lot of your colleagues. And that is how you have taken that impaired waters list information and you have basically used it to tell a story about your state and done that in a very creative way. Can you describe how you have done that and what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first started, you know, with the EP and in the assessment section, we were obviously still building integrated reports 13 years ago, but those were 
you know, there was a narrative portion that we created and that was about a hundred page document. You know, people, you know, like to read and the PDF worked. Um, and then on top of that was about 5,000 more pages of just listing material information, kind of in a table format, right? That wasn't very useful. Uh, 5,000 pages of information in a PDF, that's tough. So, you know, over the past several years, um, we really started trying to leverage some of the, like I said, the new technologies that are available to us and creating communication pieces. And, and what we've developed, you know, kind of started out as two things, but now I, I would say there's actually a third thing in there. And the first one is the integrated report story map. So we're using an Esri platform, ArcGIS uh, or Arc Online, and it creates kind of a flowing, interactive, experience that replaces that 100 page narrative in PDF. And now you can, you know, read snippets, you can interact with charts, you can embed other stories inside of this thing. It works on your computer, it works on your cell phone. Um, that's, that's the first part. And then the second part was the data. So we created a uh, mapping interface that took those 5,000 pages of information and put it into an interactive mapping application where people can download all the data if they wanted to, or they can search and find things. And that worked out well for, I think, the 2018 cycle. There was something missing, though. And the big piece that was missing is teaching everybody how to use these new tools. This <laughs> is new technology. This is not easy. Even though it looks nice, and um, it's, it's still difficult to, to, to review. So that third component was creating demonstration videos. How does one navigate this story map? Um, this narrative, in other words, and then how does somebody use this viewer that has thousands of records of data? Um, so creating those demonstration videos uh, really helped out. And that's kind of the, the three-tier component of what our integrated report looks like today. Would you say that that has improved communication with the general public or with your partners? Do you feel like you have gotten a little bit more or clearer uh, feedback on the impaired waters list since you started doing that? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling because absolutely it has. We've gotten so much uh, response from the public. It allows uh, media and social media organizations to latch onto things, to understand things better, um, to even produce better articles with, with whatever they're interested in. Um, it has definitely increased the amount of you know conversation we have with the public, and it has um, increased our public comment responses. And in a way that's not just more in the sense of count, but also like more quality. People literally have questions about a half a mile stretch of stream. They would have never been able to find otherwise if it wasn't for that map that they learned how to navigate and ask really legitimate questions about why is that impaired? Why is it impaired for this cause? And uh, what can we do to fix it? So really substantial and substantive feedback getting coming into us with this new platform. It's been really great. So we talked earlier about biggest accomplishments in this section of the Clean Water Act in the first 50 years or a little bit more recent for most states as they haven't they don't have 50 years of, of uh, impaired waters list. But I want to know specifically, Miranda, we'll start with you, success stories in your career in this program. What would you say are things that you're proud of specific to the list, either how you have 
tackled a certain impairment and been able to assess that properly. Um, maybe it's uh, it's wetlands, right? Maybe wetlands mm -hmm. weren't really well understood and now they're a little bit better understood. Like some aspect of the impaired waters list that has improved since you started working on it that you're particularly proud of. I am particularly proud of our data management and this is me geeking out again, but it is so important we have a huge water quality database. We go out to the data portal and pull down tribal and USGS data. Um, we go to other, we go to neighboring states and get the data portal data there. And that intensive pro process of pulling all that data together and comparing it to standards, that was a, a, an IT project that took seven years. And it took seven years and a dozen people working a lot of hours to get that to get that together and what that means is for a list it doesn't live in a spreadsheet it doesn't live there it lives in a database that you can query and you can make maps you i would love to make a story map of the impaired waters list the first thing i would need to do is have that data in a really central location for us to do all these other things and getting away from that hundreds of PDFs, right, that Dustin talked about. Us, it's a spreadsheet, which just rows and rows and rows of data. Having that in a central file, a central location, allows us to do so many other things. So that's my geek out answer. Mm -hmm. The real, like, I think more visual answer to other people is the impaired waters list has transitioned from sort of a lightning rod of, uh, people not liking it, not liking getting on the list for various reasons. And now it's transitioned into a communication piece. Let's talk about water quality. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about nutrient problems in our major rivers. Let's talk about PFAS. Let's talk about that stuff. And really statewide, now when the impaired waters list goes out and we talk about it, we're talking about state water quality as a whole, and that's much better than where we were 10 years. Dustin, I've always been very impressed with what you did with uh, the story map. And I would say that, that needs to be part of your personal success story for what you have been able to help bring to Pennsylvania and hopefully influence other states to try to follow in Pennsylvania's lead. But are there other personal success stories of projects that you've been involved with that, it, that take place around the impaired waters list? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, the integrated report, the impaired waters list, and this, you know, enhancement to this digital platform is, has been amazing. But we were talking about data before Miranda has talked about data analysis being so critical. One of our biggest success stories here has been the development of new science to create assessment methodology. So assessment methodology, meaning, you know, how do you take those data and compare it to that standard? You know, what is that process? Um, you know, for a long time, we were not able to really do good aquatic life use assessments in rivers. So large bodies of water, things that people can't wade in or, or simply kick bugs to get a result. Um, we've worked really extensively in our large waters um, and we developed a, a metric tool that is now able to take care of and measure water quality from a biological perspective in these large water bodies. About 3,000 miles of streams or rivers in Pennsylvania were excluded 
until fairly recently. That's been a huge accomplishment. Okay. So those are all my prepared questions. At this time, I'll ask any of you for any kind of final thoughts. Yeah. I, I would just say that for those that are interested in getting into this world, I think one of the things that surprised me when I became a biologist and, and went to college to be a biologist and, and got this amazing job um, to, to be, you know, somebody that works for the public, for the people, is that it, it's, it is a lot about biology. It is a lot about chemistry and, and nature and understanding ecology. But there are aspects of understanding data management, understanding geospatial uh, technology that somebody getting into college and wanting to do something like what we do, um, understanding and maybe taking a couple courses that are outside of the realm of biology it's actually a really good idea and really helped to solidify you know, some of my experiences here. Take a hydrology course, um, take a stats course that you might not wanna take if you're interested in biology, because it really is a multi-disciplinary uh, uh, field to be in. Uh, I would say that that for sure is, is something to be interested in if you like biology and you like water quality. You know, I, I'm, as you say that, I'm reminded about uh, athletics. There's a lot of times someone specializes in one sport, but you may want to go out for another sport that will help you become a better athlete. And in a lot of ways, if you're going to get into this field, it actually helps you become a better biologist if you take something else with it. Like you said, the statistics, my background, I actually took economics. I minored in economics, which is a little bit of a weird uh, combination uh, in, in this field, but it has helped me tremendous throughout my career to understand that aspect of things. And so I think that's really great advice, Dustin. Uh, Miranda, do you have anything similar or any other final thoughts that you might have? I would say we need more water quality economists. It is really hard to quantify our water resources and how much we value them. So there, water resources and, eco and economists, if you, if you have that knack, do it. <laughs> um, I happen to know a couple of people who, who actually um, are in that field and they are smart and brilliant and I learn a lot. That's a little bit of an aside, but- um, Well, I'm keeping that in since I just said that's what I do. So. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. One thing that I was reflecting on to elaborate on emerging contaminants. And I would add um, in Minnesota, PFAS is also um, a contaminant of concern. And we've heard a lot about it. And in Minnesota, we have known areas of contamination for PFAS and new science is constantly emerging with how this affects our aquatic life and it affects human life. And we've barely scratched the surface with our knowledge of PFAS. And PFAS, I should define as per and floral alkyl substances. And there are thousands of chemicals and they serve a variety of uses, um, but they don't break down in the environment. So right now we're finding them, but in 50 years, it's likely that we're still gonna be talking about them and how do we manage them? And right now the technology is just emerging to potentially remove some PFAS from the environment. Um, and because it's, it doesn't break down, this is the kind of stuff that we're still gonna, we're gonna be talking about. That's one of the biggest challenges that we have. And, you know, but it's also one of the greatest things about having a career like this is that there is always opportunities to learn, develop, um, do new science while you're still, you know, creating an integrated report every two years. Uh, it's really amazing place to be and, and an amazing time to be in it. 
Yeah, and expanding on that integrating integrated report, there is not only, like I mentioned, and Dustin mentioned, there's a lot that goes on with that, but even though the list is required every two years, in between those two years, we do have the flexibility to update our assessment methodology, how we take that data and compare it to our water quality standards. That's in a document that every state needs. Based on new science, we have that flexibility to adjust. And that's really interesting to have conversations with water quality professionals about okay, so we've got this new science. How are we going to apply the standard? How are we going to do things different? How much data do we need? What's the averaging time? All that very data-rich discussions, but it can come down, it can emerge based on new science and we have that flexibility. Perfect. Well, thank you both for your time, taking time out of your day to help me talk about the Impaired Waters List and the Clean Water Act for the Clean Water Pot. So thank you both for your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dustin. That's episode four. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Miranda and Dustin as much as I enjoyed reconnecting with them. Join us next month for episode five as we dive into the water quality plans known as TMDLs. I've got two more great guests lined up for you to learn about that part of the Clean Water Act. And like always, if you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at cleanwaterpod or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you may have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.